Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shops, the Spectator's Daily Politics Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman and this is the Sunday Roundup. On a call with Joe Biden this weekend, the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reiterated Israel's demand for security control over Gaza once Hamas has been destroyed and said that this was incompatible with Palestinian sovereignty. Speaking to Laura Koonsberg, UK Defence Secretary Grant Shapps described Netanyahu's views as very disappointing and said that the two-state solution is the only option. However, he described Israel's government as a rainbow coalition and said it was important to distinguish between the views of Netanyahu as an individual and the UK's support for Israel as a country. What their political leaders also instruct or decide of obviously matters enormously and maybe nowhere more so right now than in Israel. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli leader there, his spokesman said overnight, after Hamas is destroyed, Israel must retain security control over Gaza. That is a requirement that contradicts the demand for Palestinian sovereignty. Now, it's been the UK's position and many other countries for a long time that there must be two states, the two-state solution. What is the UK doing to urge him to shift that view? Mm. I think it's very disappointing uh, that Benjamin Netanyahu has uh, said that. Uh, It's not in some sense as a surprise. He's spent his entire political career uh, against a two-state solution. But the point is, which other route is there to seriously resolve this? Palestinians deserve a sovereign state. Israel deserves uh, to have uh, the full uh, ability to uh, defend itself, its own security, in other words. And unless you pursue a a two-state solution, I really don't see that there is another solution. Now, you'll get a lot of different views within Mm -hmm. the Israeli uh, government, of course. It is a uh, a, a rainbow uh, coalition. Uh, So we very much distinguish between Mm -hmm. the views of individuals and our overall support uh, for Israel as a country. It's interesting, you've said that's disappointing. NATO military chief Admiral Rob Bauer claimed this week that the West could be at war with Russia within 20 years. On GB News, Camilla Tomini asked Grant Shapps if he agreed with this view. Shapps said it wasn't inevitable, but NATO needed to be prepared and Putin must not be allowed to succeed in Ukraine. The British government aims to spend 2.5% of GDP on defence but it is currently falling below that figure. Tomini asked Shapps whether the government should be spending more, given the current global instability. Shapps said defence spending was higher than it had ever been, but agreed it still needed to go up. Welcome back to the Camilla Tomini Show. Grant Shapps, the Defence Secretary, joins me now. He's also the Tory MP for Wellin Hatfield. Mr Shapps, lovely to see you this morning. Thank you for sparing the time. Um, The chair of NATO's military committee, Dutch Admiral Rob Bauer, has given a strong indication that NATO could be at war with Russia within 20 years. Do you agree with that assessment? I mean, the truth of the matter is, as I said in my speech on on Monday at Lancaster House here in London, and the comments from NATO are really reflecting and echoing that, is no one really knows, which is why we need to be prepared for whatever comes. I don't think it's inevitable. I think it depends, no small part, on what happens with Putin in Ukraine, where he simply cannot be allowed to win uh, that war, where he walked in on a democratic neighbour. Uh, and invaded, and our response is part of making sure that he doesn't feel that he's emboldened enough uh, to go to war. 
Are we well prepared enough, though? I note General Lord Dannett, who, of course, was the former chief of the general staff. He said, quote, the woeful state of our armed forces in the mid-1930s failed to deter Hitler or prevent the Second World War and the Holocaust. There is a serious danger of history repeating itself. The government or the next one should commit now to spending 3% of GDP on defence. He's not wrong, is he? At the moment, I believe you're at 2.1%. You need to get to 2.5%. But surely, in light of the threat, not just from Russia, but also China, and what's going on in the Red Sea right now, defence spending should be at 3%, shouldn't it, Minister? Uh, well, our defence spending is the largest it's ever been at over £50 billion, and uh, it's about two and a quarter, probably, right now. Um, uh, and uh, we agree it needs to go higher. In fact, the government's committed, as, as conditions allow, uh, to go uh, to 2.5%, uh, and we think that is absolutely right to go in that. In fact, my entire speech on Monday was about this subject, about how we prepare for what is undoubtedly a more dangerous world. So you're, you're seeing everybody commenting in different ways about the state of the world, NATO, uh, Richard Dannett there, as you just mentioned, and we're, myself on Monday. We're all concerned uh, that we need to have that plan in place, and we have a plan, and we're investing £288 billion, billion pounds over the next decade to make sure that we do pump more money uh, into our military, into our uh, equipment, and that we can safely mm. defend ourselves. And Britain's leading the way, as I said, in Ukraine, but actually also uh, this week I announced uh, an operation in Europe called Steadfast Defender, which is a NATO operation at which the United Kingdom's providing 40% of the ground troops and 50% of the overall personnel. Laura Koonsberg spoke to Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper about immigration. 40,000 asylum claims were accepted last year and Koonsberg asked Cooper whether she thought that number was too high. Cooper repeatedly refused to comment on the amount, saying the UK needed to respond to global events like the war in Ukraine and asylum seekers from Hong Kong. She claimed it was important to stop the boat crossings because they undermine border security and put lives at risk, and that more budget should be spent helping refugees to get support in neighbouring countries to their own. Last year, just under 39,000 people were granted asylum. Then there was a further 112,000 who came from Hong Kong and Ukraine. Um, so there was a total of 150,000 people coming to this country, either as refugees or seeking asylum. Do you think that number is about right or is it too high? I think we've had to respond to very specific situations. So, for example, Ukraine and Hong Kong have been one-off situations in that Ukraine, there was obviously important for all European countries to respond as the nearest neighbours to Ukraine. And we did so many families across the country took in Ukrainian families. We've done so ourselves. And that, I think, has been important. And then on Hong Kong, again, the UK had some very specific obligations, but those have been both one-off mm. schemes. So there were nearly 40,000 asylum claims accepted, and many of those people had arrived here illegally. Do you think that number is too high? It's the highest granted since 2002. I think where the problem is, is the, the boat crossings. And we think that uh, look, this is undermining our border security mm -hmm. and also putting lives at risk. So we need action to stop the dangerous boat crossings. We have to strengthen our border security before in we order get to into do that, so, as Cooper, well as but, having but before a functioning we get into asylum that, system. And we will, but mm. before we get into how the system actually works, nearly 40,000 people were granted as asylum here. That is, as I said, the highest number granted in a year since 2002. 
on a matter of principle, is that too high or are you comfortable with that number? I don't think you can set specific numbers at a time when you have to respond to what the situation is in, in different parts of the world. What I do think, though, that we should be doing is working internationally mm. to make sure that actually refugees can get support in the region. We used to do much more of that. Mm. And now a lot of the aid budget that used to be used to actually make sure that so people could get support in neighbouring countries, that they weren't exploited by people smugglers, that they didn't make these huge long journeys, but it, instead is being used to pay bills for asylum hotels in the UK. Well, we should be ending the asylum hotel use it, and actually tackling some of those issues at source. That but, would be far more effective. Speaking to Koonsberg, Scottish First Minister Humza Yousaf claimed that other politicians were not calling for a ceasefire in Gaza due to a lack of leadership and moral courage. He claimed Keir Starmer's reluctance to do so was another example of him not being clear with his beliefs. Koonsberg asked whether Yousaf felt that Palestinian lives were valued differently and Yousaf agreed, saying many in the Muslim community felt that Palestinian blood is very cheap. You have been one of the UK politicians who's repeatedly called for a ceasefire in Gaza. Um, why do you think others have hesitated before doing that? I, I think there's just a lack of leadership and moral courage if I'm being frank, and, and this is a classic example of where I think nobody understands what Keir Starmer stands for. Why has he not shown the appropriate leadership on the issue of Gaza? And I don't know the answer to that, uh, but I don't know uh, uh, how anybody can see that level, as I say, of death and destruction and not call for an immediate uh, halt and an immediate ceasefire. Do you think sometimes people place a different value on Palestinian lives, on without, Muslim lives? Without a shadow of a doubt that if you talk to anybody who's Palestinian, um, you speak to many people in the Muslim community, they feel that the Palestinian blood is very cheap. Finally, former US ambassador to the UN John Bolton spoke to Trevor Phillips on Sky News about Iran's strategy against Israel and the West. Phillips asked if the US should be attacking Iran directly instead of its proxies like the Houthis. Bolton agreed, saying the conflict in the Middle East was a deliberate implementation of Iran's ring of fire strategy against Israel, and they wouldn't stop unless direct action was taken, such as attacking air defence sites inside Iran or sinking Iranian ships. Is the United States making a mistake, do you think, that uh, in attacking the proxies for Iran, Hezbollah, uh, the Houthis, uh, even Hamas in some ways, or should it strike directly at Tehran? Well, I think uh, we're seeing right now, with respect to the Houthis, for example, uh, five or perhaps it's now six American strikes. They're, they're still firing missiles and drones at ships in the Red Sea. Iran is not feeling any pain for what's happening here. And what is happening is not a series of discrete, isolated clashes. This is the implementation of what the Iranian leadership calls the ring of fire strategy against Israel, developed by the late unlamented Qasem Soleimani of the Quds Force. Uh, Hamas didn't wake up one morning and say, hey, why don't we attack Israel? This was coordinated. This is part of an Iranian plan. We can't discern the full uh, picture of, of what the Iranians have in mind, and they might not be very happy the way it's playing out. But Iran didn't uh, arm and equip and train and finance the Houthis, Hamas, Hezbollah, uh, Shia militia groups in, uh, in Iraq uh, to use these resources for their own benefit at their own discretion. Iran did all that 
So it would have a capability through its proxies to act as it's acting so, now. So would you and notwithstanding strikes against these proxies, Iran is still at it. So would you still stand by what you've said at times in the past that actually the United States should simply just take action against Iran? Uh, absolutely, and I think we could do it. I think we could uh, send several Iranian ships that are in the Red Sea aiding the Houthis. We could send them to the bottom of the Iranian of the Red Sea. Uh, we could attack uh, uh, air defense sites inside Iran. Uh, we could go after uh, military headquarters of the Quds Force. We could go after camps where uh, weapons and training has, uh, has, uh, have been transferred to various militia groups. Our, our attacks wouldn't necessarily threaten the uh, mullahs in Tehran, but as long as they are uh, engaged in all this uh, activity in the region, cost-free to them, they will continue to do it. That we, we, we have no deterrence now in, in the region, not even, oh. for goodness sakes, against the Houthis. That's all for this week. I'm Isabel Hardman and this podcast was produced by Joby Del Brill. Don't forget to subscribe to the Coffee House Shots podcast on the iTunes store. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe to our daily evening blend email. It's a free roundup of all the political news each day, along with analysis and a diary on what to expect next. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. <laughs>